You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's now open the word to our reading, which is also our text for this morning. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and He will rescue us from your hand, O King. But even if He does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, 
and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out! Come here! So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Beloved congregation, Christ Jesus, you can imagine yourself in the shoes of Ed Welch, I think. Listen to him tell the story. He says, I was up for an award and I was scared to death I would get it. The auditorium was bulging with over 2,000 high school juniors and seniors. From the back where I like to sit, it seemed a good mile or two up to the platform. All I could think of was what my classmates would think of me while I walked to the front. Would I walk funny? Would I trip going up the stairs? Would one person... I prayed it wouldn't be a girl I liked. Think I was a jerk? What about those who were nominated or who thought they were deserving? What would they think of me if I won instead of them? What would I ever say for a brief acceptance speech? God, please don't let me get this, I prayed. Well, Ed Welch didn't get the award. Rick Wilson did. Ed Welch goes on to say, Rick Wilson, I couldn't believe it of all people. No one even thought he was a candidate. You can imagine my reaction. Relief? No way. I felt like a total failure. Now what would people think of me? They knew I was up for the award and someone else was chosen. 
What a loser I was. I was ashamed to go back to class. That's the end of Ed Welch's story. Most of us have, have been there, if not all of us. The fear of others is a universal fact. And when we boil it down to what it really is and call it what it really is, this is one of the most pervasive forms of idolatry. When we fear other people, or to use the title of the the book of Ed Welch, when people are big and God is small, we have made other people into idols. Idolatry was the main reason why the people of God had been exiled to Babylon in the days of Daniel in the early 500s before Christ. There were other reasons, but the main reason was that the Jews constantly went back to worshiping Baal, Ashtaroth, Molech, and and others. Yes, they often claimed to worship Yahweh, the Lord, the true God as well. But then they mixed the worship of the true God with the worship of false gods. So we read in passages like Hosea 2.13 where God says, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. He says, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. And that punishment was carried out through the exile. And it was the reason why our text this morning takes place in the foreign land of Babylon, not in the land of Israel. With our text this morning, God comes with a message of hope and salvation for idolaters in all ages. He comes with a message of hope and deliverance for us today. And so I preach to you God's Word with the theme, The Most High God Delivers His Trusting Servants. And we'll see that He delivers them from idolatry, through fire, and for service. At the beginning of chapter 3, we read about this enormous gold image that Nebuchadnezzar erected on the, the plain of Dura told that it was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So I think that would be taller than our church building. We're not told whether this image, this huge image, was meant to represent one of Babylon's many gods. For instance, the, the image doesn't receive a name. It appears, rather, that this image was meant to represent something that it was meant to stand for the the power of Babylon, its military might, or perhaps even the might of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Whatever the case may have been, the command to fall down and worship this image was clear enough. Nebuchadnezzar said that all peoples, everybody who was invited on that special day, they were all to fall down flat on their faces before it and offer the kind of worship that was customary in those days. Perhaps that involved some kind of gesture, or perhaps there were some special words that needed to be said. We're not told. But when the signal was given, Scripture tells us that all peoples, nations, and men of every language, they fell down. And they worshipped the image of gold 
that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. However, there were three exceptions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Although they were, they were Jewish men who had been made high-ranking officials, they refused to follow the orders of the king. And that caught the attention of some of the Babylonians. Our translation says that they were some astrologers. But if you look at a footnote at the bottom of the page, it says that that can also be translated Chaldeans, which is another name for Babylonians. So these could have been just generic Babylonian people. Anyway, these, these Chaldeans, astrologers, or Babylonians, they reported the three men to Nebuchadnezzar. Not only were they not going to bow down before the, the gold image, the Babylonians also reported that they did not serve any of the king's gods. What that meant is that these three men, even though they were high-ranking officials, they were revolutionaries rising up against the king. Let's just stop here for a moment and note already what God has done. The Jews had been sent into captivity because of their idolatry. God's purpose was to use this, this exile, to chastise and to discipline His people so that they would never again turn to idols. He sent them into exile so that they would develop an unshakable aversion to idolatry. God had said, you shall have no other gods before me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego heard God and believed Him, followed His Word. And so God was indeed delivering His people from idolatry in the midst of the idolaters in Babylon. They had to have everything they had taken for granted in Israel. They had to have all that taken away from them before they were cured of their addiction to false gods. As an aside, the plan worked. After the Babylonian exile, we never read about the people of Israel worshiping false gods ever again. It's true, they they still engaged in self-willed worship. The Lord Jesus chastises them for that. But they never again bowed the knee to Baal or offered their children to Molech or engaged in the rituals of Ashtoreth. So as part of God's people in captivity, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were done with idols. This created a rage in King Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 13, we read that he was furious with rage. And then in verse 19 again, we read that again he was furious. His anger was boiling over. Out of control with these insolent, rebellious, revolutionary Jews. He told them that they'd better listen or they would be thrown in the fiery furnace. He challenged them. He said, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? That was the wrong question for the king to ask. Because the fiery furnace is nothing compared to what God has in store for those who arrogantly dismiss His commandments and His rule. 
The three men, they knew that Nebuchadnezzar's question came from a worldview where man is to be feared more than God. And their answer, the answer of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, reflected their proper, their biblical understanding of the situation. They said, we don't have to defend ourselves before you in this matter because we have God. And God is able to save us from this fire. And even if He chooses not to, if that is His will, still we will not follow you. The words here remind us of what we read in Acts 4.19 where Peter and John, the apostles, they were brought before the Sanhedrin. The Jewish leaders tried to get them to stop preaching about Jesus Christ. And they said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And in the next chapter, Acts 5, Acts 5.29, again, Peter and John were before the Sanhedrin. And basically they said the same thing. We must obey God rather than men. What this illustrates is a basic biblical principle that no authority on earth is above God in heaven. No earthly authority, whether government, parents, office bearers, teachers, or whoever else, no earthly authority whatsoever can command us to do anything which is against God's Word. God is the supreme authority who trumps any other authority which rises up against Him. It's true in the days of Daniel and his friends. It's true in the time of the apostles and it's still true today. Holding to that principle, God's people in all ages and places have been delivered from at least this one form of idolatry. Man-pleasing. The ability to hold to that principle. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from faith. The three men in Daniel 3, they trusted God and His promises. They fearlessly confessed that faith before a Gentile king who had the power to destroy them. In Hebrews 11, chapter with which I'm sure many of you are familiar, the chapter about the heroes of faith, in Hebrews 11, there is a reference to this event in verse 34 where the author of Hebrews mentions those who quenched the fury of the flames. These three men were led to do what they did through faith in God and through what He promised in Jesus Christ. And we have received what was promised them. We are richer. And we have seen God's goodness and His grace in brighter colors. The deliverance of these three men prophetically points ahead to the, to the great salvation that all Christians have in Jesus Christ. Points to your salvation. And so should not your commitment to God and His Son be even stronger? Listen to the challenging words of Christ in Matthew 10.37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me 
is not worthy of me. It's one thing to be faced with a choice between following Nebuchadnezzar and following God. What about being forced to choose between the the closest relationships you have and Christ? Pray to God that you would never have to make such a choice. Loved ones, pray that if you are ever faced with such a choice, that you would still take Christ as most precious and dear, that you would take Christ even over your parents, that you would take Christ over your dear children. Pray for the faith to stand. The kind of principled position where you stand in the face of temptation to compromise. It's not easy. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they faced a terrible death by burning. Personally, I think death by burning must be one of the most horrible ways to die. And they faced that because they would not compromise. And to make matters worse, the king ordered that the furnace be heated to seven times hotter than usual. Incidentally, this furnace was probably used normally not for burning up people, but for making bricks. Seven times hotter than what it normally would have been for making those bricks. Nebuchadnezzar gave orders that the three Jews be be tied up with ropes to ensure that they would not escape. And then some of the strongest soldiers in the Babylonian army took them on their shoulders, brought them to the furnace, and threw them in and died in the process. They gave up their lives to put these three in the fire. And so the three they did. They, they fell into the fire of the furnace. And who would have expected what happened next? Nebuchadnezzar, he leapt to his feet in amazement. As he, as he looked into the furnace, he saw not, not three men, but four. Not only that, but all of them were walking around in that same fire that just a few moments ago had killed some of the strongest soldiers in the Babylonian army. They were walking around. And that fourth man who was there with them, he looked different. Nebuchadnezzar said he looked like a son of the gods, a divine being of some sort. Later on, after he had some time to think about it, he came to recognize that this was an angel. King went to the door of the furnace and he called out for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Called them to come out. And they did. Note there for a moment that the the three men, they obeyed the king at that point. The king still had authority over them. When he commanded them to do something that wasn't against God's word, they would obey. But notice that there's somewhat of a tension his tension, his lack of a better way of putting it. Even even in Nebuchadnezzar's own words, he calls them servants of the Most High God. He doesn't say, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, my servants or my officials. At this point, he recognizes that they are 
in one sense His servants. He can command them to do things. But they are also God's servants. And God's authority trumps His own authority. Coming out of the fire, they're examined by the king's officials. Not only did they survive the fire, there was absolutely no evidence that they'd even been in the flaming, blazing furnace. There's no singed hair, no scorched robes. There's no smell of fire on them. Miraculously, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been delivered by God. And we might be tempted to say that they had been rescued from the fire. Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 28 that God rescued his servants. Undoubtedly, that's what he has in mind. And there is some truth to that. But there is a a greater salvation or deliverance in view here, and that's the rescue from idolatry. The three men were delivered from idolatry through the fire. God leading them and protecting them with His angel through the fire resulted in their being released from the obligation to bow down before the gold image of the king. They would not worship the image before the fire. But after the fire, they did not have to worship the image. In this sense, we can speak about the fire being their release from the king's obligation to be idolaters. This is a pattern that we find repeated in Scripture. We see it most clearly in connection with the life and ministry of our Savior. Though He didn't have to pass through a literal fire, the Lord Jesus did enter into God-forsaken suffering through His hellish suffering and death, salvation was brought for all His chosen ones. Christ's sufferings and His death and good news for us means that we are totally free from the curse of sin. We're free from the guilt and the punishment of sin. We believe in Him. All our sins are forgiven. We are released from the debt that we owe to God including for all the times that we have been idolaters. All the times, too, that we have been consumed with the fear of man. But Christ's redemptive work also means that we are being more and more made free from the power of sin. See, on the one hand, we have the the curse of sin, its guilt and punishment. But we also have the power of sin in our lives. Because He passed through the fire of God's wrath for us, we are being freed from slavery to sin. Just as the fire meant release from Nebuchadnezzar's obligation to idolatry, so also the redemption of Christ means release from our slavery to sin. Romans 6.18 puts it this way, You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Because we are united to Christ, because we are in Christ by faith, oftentimes our sanctification 
That's what we're speaking about here. Our sanctification involves trials and sharing His sufferings, as Paul puts it in Philippians 3.10. Many times it's only by going through the fire of difficulties that God delivers us from our idolatries and other sins. It's never easy to go through it. God uses these things to shape us and to more and more work out the salvation of Christ in our lives, freeing us from the power of sin. And we look forward to the day when our salvation will be complete and we will be entirely free from the power of sin. We'll be free from sin and all its awful effects. There'll be no more trials, no more sufferings, no more difficulties. Be glorified. And how we'll praise God when that day comes. On the day of their deliverance from idolatry in the fire, it wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who praised God. Perhaps they did, but it's not recorded for us in Scripture. Instead, it was Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the Gentile. Now, it's, it's very easy at this point to get drawn into closely examining what the king said and trying to determine whether or not he was really sincere, trying to determine whether or not he was regenerate, whether he was born again. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes a figure warning us about having a confession on our lips that doesn't match what's in our hearts or in our lives. An illustration of what Christ said in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the, the route that many commentators and preachers of the past have taken. And though there is truth in that, I'm not convinced that this is what is really emphasized in this passage. It's true Nebuchadnezzar doesn't give any evidence of abandoning his gold image or any of his other idols, his gods. He doesn't acknowledge Yahweh, the God of Israel, to be the only true God. As we we look through Daniel chapter 3, we have silence on those things. And where there is silence, we should be careful. Not only that, but this is not all the book of Daniel tells us about Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 4, he has a remarkable experience which leads him closer to the truth. The fact is, we simply don't know whether Nebuchadnezzar became a child of God at this point or at any other point. Nor is that really the central focus of the passage. God has given us this passage of Daniel so that we would focus on Him, the mighty delivering God, not Nebuchadnezzar. God is the subject of Daniel 3, not the king, not even the three men as such, although what God is doing with and for those three men is obviously central. So when we consider these words of praise from Nebuchadnezzar, think about God. It was God 
who put these words in Nebuchadnezzar's mouth. God gets praised for sending His angel to rescue the three men. God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to see that these men had done something positive actually. That they had done something praiseworthy in refusing to obey the king's command. God brought the king to make a decree whereby it was now illegal in the Babylonian Empire for anyone to say anything dishonoring about the true God. See, God turned the tables. Previously, it was some of the Babylonians who were watching. Watching, just like the Pharisees watched Jesus. Watching to see if they could bring an accusation to accuse the Jews of disobedience. Now the Jews scattered throughout the Babylonian Empire. Now they could bring before the courts those who might blaspheme the true God. And if any would do such a thing, they were to be punished with death. And their houses were to be turned into piles of rubble. Or if we we translate that more graphically and literally, they were to be turned into public toilets. Why? Because the king said, no other God can save in this way. Nebuchadnezzar had never seen this happen before. He'd never seen a God deliver people from a fiery furnace. Indeed, what a great and mighty God we have that He could do this. He can and He does save. He deserves to be honored by us and by all people. He saved from idolatry, through fire, and lastly, for service. The last verse of the chapter, we read that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were promoted by the king in the province of Babylon. As we noted earlier, previously they'd already been set over the affairs of that province. But now it appears that they're given even more honor. They're given even more authority. They're given more responsibility. Their lives were saved by God for a purpose. That they might continue to serve. Serve in the Babylonian Empire. Here again we witness a a familiar pattern from Holy Scripture. Right after the exodus from Egypt, God spoke to His people at Mount Sinai. He told them in Exodus 19 that they had been delivered for service to Him. He said, You shall be for Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests serve. We find the same pattern continued in the New Testament. After laying out the glorious teachings regarding our salvation in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Over and over we see it in the Bible. God delivers His people and sets them free so that they would serve Him. That's true for us too, isn't it? Through Christ, God has rescued us from the curse of sin. He's rescued us from the power of sin so that we would serve. And perhaps we might not serve in government like the three men in our text. Well, maybe some of us do have a gift for that sort of thing. But we can and we must serve in a variety of other ways. Serving God in our daily work, our families, in church life, and so on. 
service can rightly be described as a mark of a Christian. It certainly is a fruit of faith worked in our lives by the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, having been redeemed by Christ, how and where are you serving? By way of further application, let me say something to the to, to two groups in the congregation. To the very old and to the very young. Now both of these groups have something in common. Maybe, maybe it doesn't strike you right away, but it's true. There is something in common. Both can be limited or they may feel limited in what they can do as far as service goes. Being very young, there's very little that you can do in, in church and in society. Got a lot to learn yet. Being very old, you may be limited by the health of your body. You may also be limited by the, the health of your mind. Those things start to deteriorate. Loved ones, young and old alike, and th- this can go for the entire congregation. There's a way for all of us to serve, and it's one of the most powerful forms of service that we have as Christians. It's prayer. Prayer. All of us can do it. There are many different causes that we can pray for. Many different people. We can pray for our government, for government officials, for missionaries, for our pastors, elders, and deacons, for family members, for teachers in our our schools, and so on. Prayer is a powerful act of service that everybody in our congregation can and must be engaged in. Let's never forget those well-known words of James 5.16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I began this sermon by telling you about Ed Welch and his struggles with the the fear of man, that particular form of idolatry. And eventually, as he grew older and and matured, he came to recognize this for the idolatry that it was. called it by its name. And he says in his book, we have every reason to believe him, that he is making progress in overcoming this idolatry. How can he say that? Only because his God is our God. His God is the most high God who delivers his servants who trust in him and in his son, Jesus Christ. And when each of us look to faith in Christ, believing his word, eagerly wanting to follow him and to serve him, I assure you that He will deliver us from idolatry and from every other sin as well. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your Word truly reveals You in Your greatness. This morning we have seen You revealed as the Most High God who delivers His servants. We thank You for this revelation and the the comfort and encouragement it brings to our lives. Earlier in the service we asked You to give us Your grace again as we sang Psalm 123. 
And we make that same request here again. Please give us more grace with Your Holy Spirit so that we trust You more and more each day. Deliver us, we pray, from idolatry. Though we, though we hesitate to say it, we pray that You would use whatever trials You think are best to shape us and to make us grow. And help us, Father, when those trials come, to see them in a positive way. And Father, please also equip us with Your Spirit for service to You. We pray that our lives, ourselves, would be offered as living sacrifices out of thankfulness for the deliverance You've brought us in Christ Jesus. We pray in His precious name. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.